Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bormielsen. I am a social anthropologist based in Oslo and also one of the leaders of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. In this episode, we discuss an extremely well-known subject in South Asian history and fashion, namely kadi, the hand-spun and woven natural fiber cloth that many of us intuitively associate with Mahatma Gandhi and his promotion of Swadeshi or self-sufficiency. But in this episode, we look at Kadi in an entirely different avatar, namely as a contemporary fashion and also as an international trademark. To discuss what Kadi means today, we are joined by Shubhadeep Choudhury, a doctoral research fellow at the Department of Archaeology, Conservation and History in Oslo, finishing now his dissertation that is provisionally titled Made in Imperialism an international history of textiles in India's quest for trademark law, 1877 to 1947. In this study, uh, Shubhadeep Choudhury investigates the role and influence of the textile industry and British colonial rule in the legal discourse on trademarks in British India. And he traces the development of Kati from an Indian generic also to an international trademark. Shubhadeep, Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you, Kenneth. Thank you so much for having me here. So as I, as I mentioned, the word kadi or kadar denotes cloth that is spun or woven by hand from India. The meaning dates back to the early 20th century Indian freedom struggle. And we often, as I said, associate this with uh, Mahatma Gandhi and, of course, his iconic spinning wheel. How does your inquiry into Kadi fit into this existing and also rather well-known story? Well, so thank you so much again. And it's a great pleasure to be here today, Kenneth, on your podcast. What I'm about to discuss today is a part of a larger ongoing doctoral project that I'm pursuing at the European Research Council-funded project known as Creative IPR. And it's under the supervision of Professor Veronique Pouillard at the Department of Archaeology, Conservation and History, University of Oslo. My co-advisor is Professor Teresa Ustbo-Kuldova at the Oslo Metropolitan University or Oslo Met. And their guidance has been instrumental in the shaping of my thoughts. I just would like to state at the very beginning that there are more questions and hypotheses that I offer at this stage and not so much concrete conclusions. So I shall recount Khadi's history by trying to focus only on the evolution of its meaning. Unlike muslin that derived its luxurious value from being arguably the finest variety of cotton ever known, and it also comes from South Asia, Khadi also was known for its much coarser fabric. This presents an interesting case study because existing scholarship would suggest that usually it is in the sphere of luxury goods and services that legal battles over names and brands are most fiercely contested. And this scholarship has also been uh, contributed by my supervisor, Professor Vernik Puyar. Furthermore, Khadi also differs from traditional forms of producing textiles in South Asia that had a history of being considered luxurious products. Artisans and weavers were known to have like secretive practices and knowledge is passed down only via master to apprentice. On the other hand, I would consider Khadi to have more inclusive as an ethos of production. 
So Khadi's symbolic power can be traced to anti-colonial Indian nationalism that emerged in the anticipation and aftermath of the partition of Bengal in 1905 under British colonial rule. There has already been a lot of work done on Khadi, as you rightly mentioned, and my work also derives from works of historians like Sumit Sarkar, uh, M. R. Tarlo, Dipesh Chakravarti, as well as Tithankar Roy, only to name a few. Well, it is known that Khadi you know, emerges in a specific form of nationalist politics that emerged in the context of the Bengal partition and acts of economic boycott of Western or primarily British cloth that was spearheaded by primarily the indigenous elite. That is where we see the genesis of Khadi. Now, this boycott was coupled with the appeal for consuming cloth produced by Indian manufacturers via what were understood to be traditional methods in British India at the time. And the gamut of this nationalist politics is what we today also understand as Swadeshi, as you also mentioned. Swadeshi literally meaning maybe of one's own country. And that movement comes up in undivided Bengal. In the next few decades, like in the 1920s and 30s and so on and so forth, Mahatma Gandhi eventually adopted the rhetoric of Swadeshi in the creation of a mass appeal to produce and consume Khadi. And Gandhi gave the discourse in Khadi more political and moral strength by attributing its use as an anti-colonial response to alleviate India's poverty. And at this time, British colonial rule was also understood in this nationalist discourse as the root of India's political and economic miseries. And it is in this context that Gandhi also turns the charkha, the spinning wheel, into a symbol of Indian nationalism. So Khadi became one of the central pillars of mainstream Indian nationalism with the premise that it belonged to the Indian freedom struggle. So that's where we see how Khadi belongs to also the, the body of the nation and as a cloth of resistance against the forces of British imperialism, which I argue can be construed as a nationalist commons or nationalist intellectual commons. But it's not to say that this was a smooth process readily accepted by all sections of Indian society or even all sections of the Indian elite. Contestations to moralizing a choice of what to wear had existed throughout this dominant articulation of Khadi symbolizing national purity. The nationalist elite consciously organized their politics around symbolic acts like burning of foreign cloth. The purpose behind these symbolic acts were to construct a strong moral dichotomy between what signified being loyal to one's own culture as opposed to participating in its corruption by forces of westernization. Of course, elite leadership of such political acts, I mean, for them, it could be a question of degrees and it could also be a question of male convenience. And without going into too much details of the gendered notion of Khadi. The point remains, though, that there was indeed mass organization around the dichotomy of indigenous and westernized clothing. For instance, in certain regions of India, the British colonial state responded by prohibiting the wearing of Gandhi caps, which were caps made in the Khadi process, usually with cotton, and they were white in color. So this dichotomy could also be placed in the sense that violent police action against protesters were responded with a sense of Gandhian non-violence. And this is how I argue Khadi persisted as a powerful cultural symbol of the Indian freedom struggle. I know that this, uh, this interest you have in Khadi as an international trademark 
it came about somewhat uh, as an offshoot of your uh, doctoral work then not not only studies the legislative debates on the question of trademark registration in British India, but also these associated legal mechanisms that regulate words and marks. Could you tell us just briefly how Cadi features in that broader story that you want to tell? Absolutely. I'm grateful for this question, Kenneth. My uh, PhD thesis looks at the history of trademark legislation in British India from 1877 to 1947. And it also builds on a substantial body of intellectual property scholarship produced by scholars, including Lyland Bentley, Dave Gangji, Sam Ricketson, Rosemary Coombe, to only name a few. However, mine is a non-specialist history where I also raise political and cultural questions concerning how the law is made or was made, whose interests were taken into consideration, and so on and so forth, in the colonial context of British India. Now, to tell you a bit about the story, the Bombay Mill Owners Association wanted to enact trademark laws back in 1877, but were opposed not only by several Indian commercial bodies, but also by the Manchester Chamber of Commerce, who also had a at that time a significant presence in the Indian market. And we all know the whole story of textiles and cheap Manchester cloth flooding the Indian markets. They claimed that registering trademarks in India would be extremely costly and logistically challenging for them. So I argue in my work that among other factors, it was also the Manchester Chamber's influence that contributed to the absence of trademark law in India till 1940. 1940 is when the first trademark act comes up. And moreover, it was argued that there already existed sufficient legal protection for trademarks in India, which all criminalized fraudulent markings. And what comprised this legal protection? Firstly, there was the oldest among them were the provisions of the Indian Penal Code drafted in 1860. Then there was the Sea Customs Act 1878, which controlled all kinds of customs and regulations related to customs. But most importantly for my work was the Indian Merchandise Marks Act of 1889. The argument went that these offered sufficient protection against fraudulent use of trademarks in India. And merchandise marks as a legal form was also adopted from Britain. This was a broader category of criminal law that penalized fraud, basically. And this could be applied to fraudulent labels or indications of origin. And this line of argument was taken up by the then colonial government of India and throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries, who persistently claimed that the Indian mercantile community was against trademark registration. But even if we take the case of Bombay Milonas Association, we can say that probably at least not the entire Indian mercantile community was against this trademark legislation. And the question kept popping up, often thanks to the efforts of British and European commercial bodies who were interested in the possibility of registering their trademarks in India. And it's only in 1940 when the first Indian Trademark Act comes up. And why this is important is because enacting trademark law necessitates the maintaining of a nationwide trademark registry and thus institutionally enables like and establishes the uniqueness of trademarks in particular industrial classes. The registration of trademarks automatically attributes to them a jurisdiction, a sense of territory, and also necessitates explicitly distinguishing between labels of origin and the applicability of a particular trademark in a particular territory. 
And the Paris Convention for the Protection of Industrial Property in 1883 was the first ever convention within which questions of labels of origin started getting discussed throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But this was predominantly in Western countries. And obviously, Britain was the biggest imperial power at this time. And industrial property included patents, industrial designs, and trademarks. Thus, what I'm trying to get at is that it was internationally getting established via industrial property law that specific words could signify only specific geographical origins. And one might also claim that Champagne is one of the prominent historical examples. And so trademarks have served the purpose historically of communicating the uniqueness of a product and its source, which could also chiefly imply the manufacturer. But there were also certain allied legal instruments like indications of source and appellations of origin and such as like labels like made in Germany, which were also historically relevant at that point, they could be regulated under such legal mechanisms. And Professor Dev Gangji has also identified these origin labels as like historical precedents to contemporary geographical indications, which are also regulated under intellectual property regimes today. So my thesis presents India as one case among potentially several, where this new mode of meaning making of words as origins via law was taking hold in colonial context as well. One of the chapters of my thesis looks at the emergence of the Khadr Name Protection Act, which comes up in 1934, Khadr being another name for Khadi, within this larger imperial and international context. The act legally defined the meaning of Khadi as hand-spun and hand-woven cloth in India. For the first time in India, I would argue, we had the nationalist discourse of Khadi being cemented via law. And this is how I would say Khadi fits into my larger thesis. But in your work, you also study the evolution of Khadi through various legal actions um, of an Indian governmental body that's known as the Khadi and Village Industries Commission, the KBIC, right. in, the, in the 21st century, and how this body has sought to claim exclusive ownership of the very term Khadi. I mean, we know that KBIC has fought um, recent trademark cases in Europe against a German firm, but also against the various Indian firms at home. What does it mean for a governmental body from the global south to make these kinds of effort in securing such an exclusive right over a word or a mark across not only domestic, but even global markets? Right. This is a very pertinent question. And uh, let me begin by giving a brief account of the legal disputes, firstly at the international level. From 2009 to 2014, a German firm obtained several European Union trademarks or EUTMs. And these trademarks included the words Khadi and Khadi Ayurveda. But they registered their trademarks broadly for cosmetics, household cleaning products and agricultural products. According to the European Union Intellectual Property Office or EUIPO's classification system, it's an elaborate system, but I'm only summarizing for clarity's sake. Thus, the German firm categorically left out textiles as a class in which the trademarks could be considered applicable. Now, the KVIC, which is the sole certifying body in India for Khadi, since 2014 had been trying to get all of these trademarks declared invalid. They pursued a singular line of argument 
that was premised on this history of Khadi as a symbol of the Indian freedom struggle. It also made it clear how at the time of filing its objections at the cancellation division of the UIPO, that relevant Indian laws required a prior certification from the KVIC for any firm to label its products with the word Khadi. And in 2016, the cancellation division ruled against the KVIC's objections. The KVIC further appealed at the UIPO's Board of Appeals, and it also went subsequently to the European General Court. But unfortunately for the KVIC, it met with defeat at both these instances. The legal dispute also revealed, interestingly, that the German firm had themselves procured KVIC's cosmetic products featuring the Khadi brand from India in 2007. And on realizing that according to German laws, these products did not meet the criteria to be called natural products, the firm decided to come up with its own formulas. And then they had their products manufactured and then they started selling them in Germany and I guess other parts of Europe. Thus, uh, apart from projecting, projecting themselves as the rightful owners of the word Khadi, the KVIC also argued that the German firm acted in bad faith. But the crux of the arguments against KVIC's claims that all these European courts put forward was that the word Khadi was not popularly known among the European public, whom the courts specifically identified as the relevant public. The courts argued that the KVIC's concerns could only be considered relevant for the general Indian public and thus were not applicable in the territories of the European Union. Furthermore, it argued that even if a portion of the relevant public could indeed recognize Khadi's reputation, it was highly unlikely that they could do so for non-textile goods. And moreover, the evidence submitted by the KVIC to establish bad faith was not enough, was not sufficient. And ultimately, the argument went like the German firm was well within its rights to exploit what can be considered the ignorance of the general European consumer on such matters. I summarize this argument as follows. One cannot deceive someone about the origins of something they are ignorant about because they presumably do not know any better. But then such claims arising out of the neat logic of law also need to be challenged because why did the German firm decide to call its products with a name that had no possible associations in the minds of its intended consumers? Why not call it something a bit more German or something European that can be easily identified by the internet consumer or in this case, you know, who eventually become the relevant public. Now, coming to the domestic arena or domestic Indian arena, the KVIC has also been taking legal action against well-known Indian clothing brands, as well as some of its own historic institutions in recent years, sometimes suing them for crores of rupees for what it claims to be an illegitimate use of the word Khadi. In fact, in 2021, the National Internet Exchange of India Domain Dispute Policy Arbitration Tribunal in New Delhi ruled that Khadi isn't a generic name, but is owned by the KVIC. So this was in the context of a local Delhi-based firm comprising of a few individuals who use the word Khadi in their website. So in the eyes of the KVIC, that was also perhaps infringement, that even your website can't have the word Khadi. And how I understand all of 
this is that the very act of commodifying a word like khadi for a post-colonial society like India via intellectual property rights is a historic moment. Like KVIC's transnational legal battles demonstrate that Khadi is going through a tense transformation from being a legacy of an anti-colonial struggle to something that can be exclusively owned. Having said so, I would still argue that the historical trigger of this transformation needs to be understood in terms of capitalism as a historically Euro-centered process that arrived in India via British colonialism and got reproduced via elite sections of Indian society. Yes, because I know that this is your argument, no? that Khadi as a trademark represents the form of intellectual property gaining a stronger foothold in the social life, but also the political life of people in post-colonial societies, and in your case, India, of course. But this, I also understand, no, doesn't happen entirely out of the blue. I mean, there were precedents, or at least we have earlier historical signs of something similar, no? You're quite right, Kenneth. Indeed, there were certain precedents in history that I've come across in my research. I briefly mentioned this earlier, a law that was enacted in 1934 called the Khadr Name Protection Act. It established Khadr or Khadi as a trade description, meaning cloth that is hand-spun and hand-woven in India. And this was, of course, pre-partition India and thus included present-day Pakistan and Bangladesh in its implied source. Now, a trade description was also a technical term under the provisions of the Indian Merchandise Marks Act, 1889. That meant any description or statement indicating a product's geographical origin, constituent material, quantity or other numeric products as properties, sorry, as well as the process in which it was made. Merchandise marks was a subject of criminal law that essentially existed to criminalize fraudulent markings or labels of origins, as we discussed earlier. But particularly for British India, the existence of merchandise marks law was also put forward as one of the reasons for there being no need of enacting a separate trademark law and the setting up of a separate trademark registry. But my most recent archival research, which... I should mention, has been made possible thanks to the generosity of the University of Oslo Sasakawa Young Leaders Fellowship Fund. It has revealed that it was, in fact, uh, Pandit Motilal Nehru, a former president of the Indian National Congress and prominent nationalist leader, as well as the father of India, independent India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru. Motilal Nehru proposed this legislation in 1929, almost two years before his death in 1931. And the bill was then taken up after his death by another nationalist leader, Gaya Prasad Singh, who was also a member of the Legislative Assembly at that time. The stated intention of this bill was to regulate the market for Khadi in India and penalize what, in this nationalist imagination, was considered spurious Khadi. And the spurious Khadi was considered to be made in both Indian mills as well as imported from outside India. And this was a fascinating revelation for me, since it is not widely known, or at least I wasn't aware, that Khadi was legally defined way back in 1934. And it's fascinating because, as discussed earlier, Khadi by this time was a core aspect of Gandhian nationalism, which essentially embodied a resistance to colonial power. And uh, here we have an avatar of Khadi in terms of industrial property law as a label of origin, and this exists at the same time 
as its radical political avatar of boycotting what was deemed Western and alien. But the law itself in this context, it doesn't get deemed something alien, or at least not within the dominant Indian nationalist discourse. In fact, the law was used to keep spurious Khadi originating from considerably alien sources at bay. And as a result, the law itself becomes something one could embrace even as a nationalist. However, in the legislative debates of this act, one also finds references to several mill owners taking offense to this very strict definition of Khadi as handwoven and hand spun, because they argued that a lot of weavers at the time also used mill made yarn to produce what could be called Khadi. And moreover, even among commentators who agreed with the proposed bill, the meaning of Khadi as coarse cloth was not necessarily something that they understood have to do with the production process of Khadi. Thus, we see that even at the first attempts at legally confining the meaning of Khadi, there existed a plurality. There existed challenges and contestations to this claimed trade description. I know that this is your area of of expertise, these discussions on trademarks, uh, property rights, and the historical component. I do have to ask you about the status of Khadi in India today. I mean, it, it wasn't that long ago I, I saw that Khadi was actively being uh, promoted as um, I think the term they used was the fabric of the future because of its eco-friendly nature, its living texture and, and so on. And I know that it's also being embraced by a new generation of Indian designers who have expanded sort of the color palette, but also experimented with uh, westernizing the cuts, uh, creating new fashion trends and, and so on. W- what does uh, Khadi signify in India today? Oh, this is an excellent question, Kenneth. And it adds yet another dimension of what Khadi means today. Yes, I would admit this is not exactly my core research area, but I would still try to answer this to the best of my abilities. And so today it has been well established that Khadi exists as a brand that is immediately associated with India as a nation. The nationalist discourse in Khadi made the word a part of what I argued earlier, nationalist intellectual commons. It got culturally coded as a common uniform for India's politicians even, and Dipesh Chakravarti has written a paper on this as well. And according to a recent paper I read, the KVIC's sales have been on a steep rise since 2019-2020. Compared to the previous year, sales jumped by almost 31% in 2019-2020 to a figure of approximately 40 billion Indian rupees or roughly 480 million US dollars in today's uh, conversion rates. And these numbers can be more accurate. I'm just giving a broad ballpark figure. There has been thus a retail explosion of Khadi. And while this does require further research, my understanding is that this explosion is what is getting manifested as fashion. And simultaneously, I think connotations of luxury are now also getting attached to Khadi, whether intended or unintended. This for me is also a historic change in its meaning. And regarding sustainability, while any amount of restraint to existing global production practices of clothing will be welcome, because if, you know, the discussion and we see like there has been several cases of exploitation of like say sweatshop labor in the third world and so on and so forth. And my 
concern is that if the discussion around the politics of Khadi gets circumvented and becomes one strictly of law or of elite consumption of Khadi as fashion, then claims of sustainability need to be viewed with caution, especially because any mass and industrial production of clothing will at one level not only involve spinning and weaving, which are the two parameters that Khadi legally is relating to, but also dyeing. And it is well known how synthetic dyes can have a grave environmental and health impact. In the past, it has been documented as well. I might not be fully aware about this, but then I don't think Khadi production as of now, you know, is legally required to use only natural dyes, even though we keep hearing of these cases or these articulations of Khadi is being like more closer to the natural dyeing process rather than synthetic dyes. But I'm not sure if there is a regulation in place. So I think this is a subject of regulation that needs to be taken care of. So to sum up, I think Khadi in India today does signify a dramatic change, which from a consumption and branding point of view usually gets packaged as a welcome change. However, the hands that spin and weave Khadi are still largely missing as stakeholders who represent themselves, who represent their own interests. In fact, all these turns towards Khadi not being a generic and being exclusively owned by the KVIC begs the question of which Indians today even understand and accept the concept of exclusive ownership of words and labels of origin and intellectual property in general. Like how, how diffused are these concepts even? Like who can readily relate to owning a word as property? And are these the same Indians who spin and weave their cloth by hand? I have my doubts, but it definitely calls for further research. So more than anything, I would say Khadi today signifies several layers of difference, economic, cultural, and with the cultural, I would associate legal as well. Because I think lawmaking itself is something cultural, apart from everything else that comes with lawmaking. And of course, political. And these differences, they often remain unaddressed in our discussions on intellectual property in post-colonial contexts. It's been a genuine pleasure having you on the podcast, shedding light on the history of Khadi, but also on its contemporary importance. My name is Kenneth Bonelson, and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.